Hello, and welcome to the Unheard Weekly Podcast. I'm Charlie Pickles, Managing Editor at Unheard, and I have the pleasure of filling in for Aisha Hazarika. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the stories that we feel are not being properly reported in the media. And we also like to discuss our heroes and villains of the week. I'm delighted to be joined by two fantastic guests on today's podcast. First of all, Paul Embry. Paul is a national organiser of trade unionists against the EU, so a Brexiteer, also a Blue Labour activist and a firefighter. I'm also joined by James Ball, who is a writer and reporter and author of Post-Truth, How Bullshit Conquered the World. I'm going to go straight in to our first underreported story. So, Paul, please can you tell us what your story is? Yeah, my my story really revolves around um, what you might call the the disconnects and the growing disconnect um, between the higher echelons of the the Labour Party and the wider Labour movement uh, and ordinary working class people. Uh, I think that's a schism that's been growing for a long time, uh, and I think uh, I think it's one that's um, that's getting worse. Uh, and I think how we close that gap and how we, as a Labour movement, reconnect with the people who, once upon a time, frankly, were the bedrock of Labour Party support, um, but now I think feel increasingly alienated from the party and politically homeless uh, is one of the, the big political questions of our time. And you wrote a fantastic piece for us at Unheard um, yesterday, which I really strongly recommend everybody reads. But it was specifically looking at London and the fact that there is a tendency to sort of paint London as a particular type of city, which is very global, kind of very um, metropolitan, sort of very liberal. Um, but you're making the point that actually that's ignoring a huge element of actually the, the population that makes up London. Yeah, and it's it's propaganda. Um, you know, if you see a politician speaking or a celebrity speaking or a, a sort of middle class journalist speaking, then invariably they will present London as this kind of lovely, happy place of, of liberal cosmopolitanism because they generally live in those sorts of places like Islington and Camden, etc. Uh, actually, there are vast chunks of London that do not actually fit that type. Uh, and I, as I said in the piece, I grew up in one of those places, a very working class area, the London borough of Barking and Dagenham. And that's a place that over the last 20 years has gone through huge social convulsions, um, which frankly, most people in the media and in politics have completely ignored. Um, and there are other places like that still in London, although I think they're, they're diminishing in number, uh, where those types of people, and I would also say there's, there's what I call an accidental alliance almost between those people in those kind of tougher, grittier, traditional working class areas and the kind of conservative voters uh, in the suburbs of London. Both groups, I think, just feel completely shunned by the liberal elite. Both groups have those kind of old-fashioned, um, often socially conservative, what you might call those faith, family and flag views. Um, and they look at the politicians, not just in London, but across across the country, and think actually when you present this image of London and the broader, the, the wider country being this place of, of happy, tolerant, multicultural liberalism, it really isn't like that. And I think that's one of the reasons for the real disconnect between the political class and ordinary working class people. And you can't really have this discussion without talking about immigration within it. Um, and you make 
the case very strongly in your piece, and you, and you have done before for us, that um, we're conflating a um, wariness of immigration, even a, a reluctance to see the levels of immigration that we have seen, with racism. Um, can you just explain that a bit? Yeah, I mean, I now saw it firsthand when I when I was living in Barking and Dagenham, which which was a very stable, settled community. It was never an affluent community. It was just a traditional working class um, community uh, centered around a council estate, and there was the, the the Ford's factory in Dagenham on the on the doorstep. And it was an area where people didn't have a lot of money and, you know, people didn't go to university, frankly, and there wasn't great opportunities for people. And when that is the case, when people's horizons are not necessarily as as broad because of, of the, you know, the obstacles that they face in life, I think concepts such as a sense of place and a sense of belonging and a sense of community and a sense of relationships and family, etc., become all important to people and actually take on much more meaning than they often do for people who, you know, are pretty well healed and can go to university or well-travelled, work in a professional career, etc. So when something happens, like happened in Barking and Dagenham, a real sort of demographic social convulsion, those people just become disorientated and bewildered. Uh, and those people were dismissed as, as racists and bigots. Uh, and that was shameful because all that happened was that they were just uneasy about the pace of change in their society. And when they expressed it, they were met by a tin-eared establishment who lectured them about GDP and, and cultural enrichment, etc. And that's why people in Barking and Dagenham are completely cut off from the political class, including the Labour Party. And James, I mean, you're, you're a Remainer. Um, and therefore would perhaps disagree on some of these points with um, Paul. But, I mean, what do you think that Labour are speaking to this group of people that feel alienated? And, and if not, how do you think they could be doing that? I mean, I, I think I tend to be wary and anxious of all stereotypes. So I think I would completely sort of agree this sort of sense as if London's this monoculture of, you know, diversity, happiness, you know, look how wonderful it all is. And we've got 16 different national restaurants on my street, which is usually what middle class people mean when they talk about sort of diversity. It's, you know, the food around here is brilliant. It's like, you know, clueless. But this isn't just London. And I sort of what makes me anxious about this kind of argument is, you know, I think about where I grew up. I grew up in West Yorkshire. I grew up in Halifax. And, you know, when I grew up, we had race riots in Bradford. We had all sorts of issues. But you've also got, you know, lots of universities up there, lots of kind of people who never really leave their hometown but get a decent education, still live on the street they grew up in, you know, do sort of semi-professional jobs and who are pretty liberal in their outlook. Lots of working class people don't have socially conservative views. Like, you know, I grew up in a mixed race family in Halifax and I'm gay. Uh, and so this idea that working class people sort of are always socially conservative, I just think is a bit risks sometimes actually making the same kind of stereotype as if we talk about the liberal elite as a monolith too. Um, and so I think you've got socially liberal people, socially conservative people everywhere. Labour has always been quite a broad church on that front. I think the problem at the minute is, you know, I just don't think Labour's offering very much to people who aren't already on quite a good income. It's sort of the the socialism of, you know, freebies of bonuses rather than the socialism of helping people make sure work pays, that you can raise a family, that you can do all of this stuff. I think whether you're socially liberal or socially conservative, you can fix that. I mean, you mentioned there um, 
race riots of the past. Um, are you saying that because you think that divisions are getting to a point where we could see something like that happen again? I'm saying it actually because I think we've moved a long way beyond it. It's just not the kind of tensions that you see. Um, I think I think people do find it strange when their area changes. You know, the street my mum grew up on now, she would feel anxious about walking down because it's, you know, entirely an Asian area. And she sort of says she's sure she'd actually be safe. It just is so different from what she remembers. Um, and so I sort of recognise there's things like that. But as it's been longer and longer with these now being multi-ethnic areas, people relax about it. I think the danger comes when what's happened in a lot of ways is immigration's been used as a proxy to explain service cuts. And so it's that sense of people jumping the queue or that sense of people getting huge amounts of benefit or and people are sort of aware they're getting less out of the system than they used to. And if you see new people coming in, it's not hard. And especially where people encourage this view, it's not hard to think they're getting it instead. And so I think actually, you know, this this is the sort of classic, you know, line that you say about not listening to. But I think People have really understandably sort of looked at their own circumstances getting worse, wages not going up, you know, they're getting less from the council, less from benefits, less from all of this stuff, and this resentment and sense that it's going to someone else instead. Do you think, um, Paul, that that's fair that um, immigration, or, or I should say rather immigrants, have just become scapegoats for other social ills? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure. Much of what James said I don't necessarily uh, disagree with. I think in the sense that actually, you know, most working class people um, are very accommodating when it comes to, 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 you know, people who are coming from abroad, etc. Um, and they don't necessarily you know, this slogan that they're constantly hit with, stop blaming migrants. In fact, that's not what they do. <clears throat> Often people will blame the system and, and not take out their, their fury on the migrants themselves. But I don't accept this argument, and I think it's contradicted by the evidence that actually people are making scapegoats of, of migrants because of the cuts to public services and, and austerity, etc. Now, certainly there's an element of that, of course, when people are struggling to make ends meet and if, if you know, they're, they're potentially out of work or they can't get their kid into a local school, etc., then then it's possible they will look at immigration as the reason for that. But let's not forget, and, and I can go back to, to you know, the, the place that I, I'm familiar with, Barking and Dagenham. Actually, the BNP won 12 seats in Dagenham in 2006 before the financial crisis hit. Um, that was when, you know, compared to today, actually, we were, we were better off, to be perfectly honest, um, and what it was is people simply saw a very, and it really was, I, I went through it, it was a very rapid and deep social and cultural transformation of a society that for generations before that had been pretty settled. So my view, and most of these people had no issue with immigration, by the way, very few of them said we should put the borders up and keep everybody out. A vast majority of them said, actually, immigration is a good thing, but it has to be managed properly and it has to be controlled properly. And what you can't have is a system that just effectively dumps, for want of a better word, huge numbers of people in concentrated areas, often the poorer working class areas, and say to, the, and say to that community, there you go, get on with that. That's multiculturalism. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it vibrant? When you say to 80-year-old ladies who have lived in a place for, you know, 60 years or so and, and have seen this very rapid change, well, what's your problem? This is the wonders of multiculturalism. Then effectively you're insulting them. So 
how do you think any changes, any any social and cultural changes in that respect have to be done at a pretty slow, almost glacial pace to, to avoid, you know, those, those tensions and the, that anxiety coming to the surface? And this is exactly the point that David Goodhart makes in his book, um, Road to Somewhere, which is that you can be anti-mass immigration without being anti-immigrant. Yes. But but I do think some of our listeners will nonetheless feel that voting for the BMP, which, you know, a fair few people, I think myself included, would say were a racist party, um, is still not necessarily the natural step from being, you know, anti-mass immigration. And, I mean, I agree, they're, they're, they're a noxious, racist and, and fascist party, I mean, in, in the sense that they still exist, which fortunately, you know, they, they, they almost don't. Um, but the truth is, if you see things, and we can we can be very high-minded about it, and we can patronise, you know, the likes of the, the people in Barking and Dagenham and say, well, you know, you were wrong to vote BMP, and, and trust me, I urged them not to and, and, and pleaded with them not to. But actually, if you look through the eyes of somebody who sees their community changing in, in ways that they're really uneasy with... And they try and have that debate and they try and express their concern in a, in a temperate, genuine way. And the political class on all sides of the spectrum, frankly, um, say to them, your concerns are not valid. Uh, you're blaming migrants, which they never were. Um, this is the wonder of multiculturalism. You should embrace it. And if you say that to people for five or six years, election after election, as happened, then eventually people are going to take, you know, extreme action, as they would see it. And and in Barking and Dagenham, frankly, it was a protest vote. Um, and people, and and this was a, the terribly sad thing that the BMP, even though they had got a foothold in other parts of East London, Tower Hamlets, etc., and had found some traction there, they'd never ever penetrated Barking and Dagenham. The, 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 the council in Barking and Dagenham was always, you know, solid labour. It was a solid labour area. So unless people are prepared to engage with those people, because we can write them off and say, actually, you're all a bunch of racists and we're not going to bother, we're not going to chase your vote anymore. Well, all you're doing is making the problem worse. You need to engage with those people. We need to take their concerns seriously. And that means not paying lip service to their concerns, but actually doing something about it. And then you've got a chance of winning them back. And James, I mean, that... Paul mentions this whole argument that that is often trotted out by politicians who perhaps might fit into the more kind of anywhere uh, in David Goodhart's um, description uh, category that, you know, it's great because look at GDP, you know, kind of look at the jobs that are being created. But actually, doesn't that forget the human side of mass change? It it does. I mean, I'm just going to have to quickly tackle a BMP thing, having grown up in Halifax, which was a BMP stronghold for years. It is a racist party. And if you vote for it, you are at least accepting racism as worth it. And, you know, UKIP stand against basically everything I believe in. I'm quite happy to say that while there are some racists in that party, millions of people vote for it and aren't. BMP voters, there is a limit to how much I'm happy to explain away. Do you think the, the voters themselves are racist? Then? Yes, you think, I think by the you time... think thousands of people in Barking and Dagenham who, I, who previously had voted Labour election after election think, suddenly became I, racists? I, I don't think Labour has uh, had a... Like, 
come on, there's a history of racism within uh, the Labour Party, just as in some of the earlier days there was a history of sexism in the party. It's, you know, those issues are there. And yes, I think lots of the people are either racist or so close to racist it no longer matters. And yet they and yet they didn't but, then vote for the BNP afterwards. So, you know, Paul's point that actually it was a protest vote because they felt there was nowhere else to turn. Surely yes, it I, have some I think, merit. I think that's there. I just think there's a limit to how much we can sort of keep saying legitimate concerns. You know, if you grow up sort of having hearing things be shouted at you and your relatives, you sort of just don't feel all that relaxed about, you know, apologize you know, being something of an apologist for BMP voters, although I know you did condemn the party. But sort of taking it to your question, I absolutely sort of think uh, this sort of detached sort of, you know, statistical economics argument of saying, oh, but GDP or oh, but statistically completely clueless, completely out of touch and completely alienating and also incidentally exactly how Remain ran their campaign. And there are people who, you know, this country is now 13 years into a pay freeze. So like we're still below the pay levels that we had there. We've got to be more in it. And essentially just sort of run, running this campaign sort of saying, oh, well, the country as a whole is doing quite well. So, you know, just because you aren't, you know, please vote for us anyway. And, and, totally and actually, out of touch and, and totally a, disconnected. And, and actually a Thatcherite argument. I mean, I, I never cease to be amazed at the, the number of people on the left, people in the Labour Party and the trade union movement who constantly trot out this argument about, you know, it's all about GDP, it's all about GDP, it's all about the economy first when it comes to free movement. Well, there can be no impact on the economy. Actually, when the Labour Party and and trade union officials start using Thatcherite arguments where it's all about the economy and nothing else, it's all about, you know, the the cost of a pound note, it's all about if you can increase your your, your pay packet at the end of the month by a few quid, regardless on the impact of you, regardless of the impact on your family regardless of the impact on your community, then I think something has gone seriously wrong. But that's what people in the Labour Party are doing. Okay, well, that actually leads us quite well, I have to say, into our next uh, underreported story. So, James, tell us what yours is. So mine is based on new research from the OECD this week, and it's essentially saying that actually around the world, this thing called foreign direct investment is dropping. Uh, And particularly in the UK, it's actually dropped like a stone. If you wanted to be sort of sensationalist and scaremongering about it, and why not, uh, you could say it's down 92% on last year. Um, And this is, you know, if you are a Remainer like I am, there is a real temptation on this to jump on it and say, here is the number that kind of shows, you know, a big definitive Brexit effect. Um, It's actually more complicated than that. It's always more complicated than that. But foreign investment is a really good and important thing for the country. Sort of when it's working as we want it to, that's essentially if, say, Nissan uh, wants to build a new factory or this kind of stuff, that all counts as foreign investment. If people sort of buy up successful British companies, thus rewarding the current shareholders, you know, that's FDI. Or simply just if, you know, a global company, say Apple, they make a ton of money in their retail shops and they decide to reinvest it and build more. That's foreign investment. So if it drops, it's a real sign that the rest of the world's losing faith in us. But also when it's working as it should, it creates jobs, it creates new things here. And so it can be a real catalyst for the economy. And so if it's at a low level, we've only got one year's data at the moment. But if that's sort of where it is, that is a worrying sign. And we should say that that one year's data is against a previous year that was particularly high 
Yes, and this is why I kept sort of caveating with when it works as it should. Last year was an amazingly high figure because um, basically AB InBev and SAB Miller, who between them make basically every beer that you've ever heard of, um, yeah, it's really monopolised there, um, they merged and they're both global companies. They have some jobs in the UK, but the bulk of their workforce are overseas. But because they're listed in London that counted as this huge flow of money into the UK, none of which actually filtered through. But if we sort of ignore last year, we're at the lowest level that we have been for 12 years. And it was also actually about half the level, in fact, a third of the level of the average of most of the other ones lately. So there is a real drop going on in there, as well as this weird technical bit. Let's just reflect, though, for a moment on um, the broader international context for this. So it's, as you start, said at the start, you know, this this might be a great moment for Remainers to sort of kind of wave the flag and say, see, see, I, I told you so. This is exactly what was going to happen. And yet what we're really talking about is a significant drop in FDI, foreign direct investment, um, across the OECD. Um, uh, so that collection of countries also across the EU. And in fact, one of the things that the report says is that disinvestments in Ireland and Luxembourg had a particularly um, large impact, as well as the UK's drop on the EU figures. So, you know, there, there is a broader context here than just companies thinking, um, you know, we're not sure what's going on in Britain. It's not as attractive to us anymore. Yeah. So there's two global factors going on with this. And one of them is that Ireland and Luxembourg have been up to some shenanigans with overseas companies, uh, essentially um, allowing various tricks to drop corporate tax rates to zero, etc. And so a lot of Ireland's FDI is only technical. The money never really enters the country. What they got out of it was sort of headquarters with a few hundred or a few thousand staff, that kind of thing. It you know, seems to have worked quite well as a trick for them, but understandably has annoyed a lot of other countries. So some of that stuff's technical. The kind of global real factor was, uh, you, you may have noticed the US got a new president in uh, the start of last year. And I think a lot of companies sort of were watching and waiting to see how volatile he might or might not be. And so it wasn't really the kind of year to make big corporate power plays. Now, the UK has had a more market effect and a more market drop than most countries. So it's one of these where, yes, there are a lot of global factors. You know, anytime you start really digging into something, it's got to be very yes, but yes, but yes, but. It becomes greyer and greyer. Yeah, but there is there is a real UK effect in there. But obviously, it's not just the only thing going on. And as I would caution sort of fellow Remainers, we've we've sort of cried wolf on uh, economic figures quite a few times. You know, there's quite a lot of positive figures Leavers could uh, point to, and I'm sure will. Uh, and Remainers have been left having sort of been fairly red-faced with saying there will be an immediate and catastrophic recession, which was a stupid thing to say. Well, um, the- but kind of... You know, we've instead had to kind of go, oh, well, we went from the fastest growth in the G7 to the slowest growth in the G7 and our forecasts have been degraded. It all starts to sound a little bit. I mean, the truth is we don't know either way yet. So, Paul, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, we were talking previously on your underreported story about the kind of human aspect of some of this and whether kind of talking about high level numbers of, you know, total FDI and reductions, etc, is very meaningful. And, and I'm struck that whilst 
on the FDI side, we might have seen a decline. You know, the FT this week reported that manufacturing growth is up. Um, actually, overall investment is up. And and in terms of the sort of daily lives of, if you like, ordinary families and ordinary communities, I mean, some of this actually might not be a bad thing. I just think in terms of the ordinary lives of people and, and how they see this kind of stuff, what has struck me is that over the last couple of years since the since the referendum, the kind of Westminster commentariat and the, the, the politicians, etc., have made no attempt to actually debate the issues that led so many people to vote leave in the first place. What we've seen is for two years a very kind of technical debate around things such as the single market and the customs union and the Irish border, etc. And all of that's important. Of course it is. And there's a, a debate to be had about that. Um, but you know what? People people didn't have the single market in their minds when they voted leave. They didn't have the customs union. They didn't have levels of, of FDI, etc. What drove so many people to, to vote leave, I think, was, was their values, was um, what they saw happening in some cases in their community, um, was democracy. They, they looked upon the EU in many cases as this kind of monolith that was um, effectively making laws in, in, in Britain without them having much of a say, etc. Um, and, and so those things are, are not part of the debate. They're not part of the debate. And, and I think this is probably why you're not seeing that much of a shift in the polls and why that leave vote is still pretty resolute because people are thinking, well... I voted this way, and in the two years since I voted, you lot at the top have not discussed at all the reasons why I voted this way, and actually some of you are trying to subvert it and overturn it. So, of course, this stuff is important, and, and it will, in the long run, have an impact on people's lives. But in terms of the, the, the immediacy, I just don't think it registers with people. And so, James, in terms of... Um people's ordinary lives I mean kind of money in your pocket is a really important thing to people um, and you know whilst I, I'm certainly as a Leave voter very sympathetic to the argument that says you know it was much, it was much, about much more than the economy um, if people start seeing wages going down and we should say and you said kind of leavers will throw out some good facts but you know wages are going up but if we start seeing wages going down because businesses pull out that that's a problem for ordinary people. I mean, wages have been real wages have been bouncing around zero for years now, and actually it hasn't really changed in either direction since the Brexit vote, which you know again Remainers would probably have said it would have gone down further. I think essentially a lot of the leave rhetoric among sort of front bench politicians now is, oh well, if it leaves us worse off, it's a price worth paying for everything. That wasn't what voters were sold. You know, it was sold more money for the NHS, you know, more money around the place, more all sorts of things. I think, I, I actually suspect what will happen is there'll be a sort of compromise fudge Brexit that really no one will like. Um, and it will probably have some negative effects on the economy, but not a disaster. You know, there'll be one or two extra freedoms, but not very much. And I don't think the Leave campaigners will get the blame for that. I think that will be seen as a sabotaged Brexit, which I think is a big hazard all round, because then I think you'll have quite a swell of public anger with very little to focus it on. Um, and so, you know, I think there's been quite a lot of irresponsibility around. And I think we have made a huge mistake that we keep making on the Remain side, which is sort of exactly the point that Paul was making on... We keep trying to find reasons why Brexit shouldn't have happened. 
you know, the 350 million bus was a lie. It's like, well, yes, it was. But do we really think that was the only reason Brexit <laughs> happened? Of course not. Mm. Oh, well, it was because of Russia or it was because of, you know, Facebook sinister overspending adverts. You know, get to it in the end and remain spent nine million quid more than Leave did. And that's without the leaflet. And so we need to stop trying to find some small print or technicality or, you know, oh, I've just unearthed this law from 1831. That means we mm. can get off it, you know. Mm. And if I hear another Remain voter say it was an advisory referendum, we don't have to do it. I will honestly tear some hair out. We we do actually have to look at why people voted that way. And, you know, I would like to see if we leave us stay in the single market. I would like to see us try and make it something that can work. But that does involve changing people's minds, and we haven't. And so, like, actually stopping trying to find some reason why it shouldn't have happened accepting that it did and then kind of going okay that doesn't have to be everything you know there's still politics can always change it's about changing minds but that does mean listening to leave voters and we don't do that we shout at them instead i I say to people that if if they genuinely think that so many people in this country voted leave because of something they read on the side of a bus then they really don't know their, their 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 own country they don't know their fellow countrymen you know this is this was a vote that was building up for years and years and years and frankly it insults people to say oh actually you would have voted to remain but you saw this big red bus and you decided to, to vote leave it, it, it really is pathetic and I think the, the the whole democracy argument is is that you know people people voted leave because they felt that the political establishment in this country had forgotten them and was ignoring them and wasn't interested in their view and frankly those people who are trying to sabotage Brexit are just proving that point. Nothing proves their point more than the fact that having voted in so many millions to to leave the EU, so many politicians are saying, well, we're going to do everything we can to to stop that happening. I think part of this, and this might be me being a technocratic journalist, etc. I think there is a problem of the country that we live in isn't always the country that we think we do and sort of we romanticise certain bits, you know, and we think about some industries as if they're sort of inherently better or more worthy or more British. And so, you know, take manufacturing. The biggest manufacturing sector we have is food, um, which obviously actually border controls make a real headache for because it slows down just-in-time food chain production and lots of our stuff goes in and out that way. High-tech manufacturing, it's great, and the jobs it makes are great, and we've got a really good auto industry. We shouldn't ignore that. You know, the just-in-time procedure, the borders, all of that, that's quite a bunch of technical issues which Brexit could make a lot trickier, which is why car manufacturers are worried. But it also doesn't make nearly as many jobs as it used to. You know, high-tech manufacturing now, you know, factories that used to employ five, 600 people can manage on 40 and so this sort of, there won't necessarily, if, even if we rebalance the economy, be a huge boost in manufacturing jobs. I think the ultimate sort of sign of the country Britain is versus the country we think we are is how much of the Brexit debate is around fishing. And I understand why fishing has a special kind of place in our hearts. We're an island nation and all of that. But the fashion industry, for example, is 15 times bigger than the fishing industry and has skilled jobs right through, you know, we manufacture here, it's retail, it's design, you know, it's all these sort of skilled good jobs. And fashion maybe has had about one sentence in the House of Commons since Brexit and actually is quite vulnerable to it in a lot of ways. And yet we constantly talk about fishing. And so I wonder sometimes if we voted for and if we talk about 
an economy that isn't really the one that we live in. Part of the problem, surely, is, is that in terms of, of the decline of manufacturing in, in, in this country, one of the reasons has surely got to be the, the, the fact that the, the pound has been overvalued for so long and it's made us fundamentally uncompetitive. We don't invest, you know, we've got issues over productivity, etc. Uh, we've got a big balance of payments problem. Um, and until we and until we resolve that and until we become more competitive, we're not going to see a re-emergence of, of manufacturing. I mean, manufacturing, there's been a general deindustrialization we know but i think manufacturing in terms of the you know the industry itself and the thousands of jobs that have gone i, I think that can be traced back in large part to, to to the obsession that successive governments have had on just maintaining an overvalued pound I think we could have a whole entire separate discussion uh, on the type of economy that Britain should have and and whether successive governments have taken conscious decisions to make us much more heavily dependent on financial and services versus manufacturers. But sadly, we will have to move on. Um, Fascinating discussion. But we're going to go into our heroes and villains of the week. Uh, And I would like to start, Paul, with you, if you could tell us your villain my villain of the week is the sports minister, Tracy Crouch, um, who has effectively kiboshed um, what I think is a really good idea among football fans, many thousands and thousands of football fans who support the idea, to reintroduce terracing or safe standing, as it's now called. Uh, I mean, being a huge football fan myself and remembering the days where you you know, pre pre Hillsborough, you stood on terraces, and the atmosphere was so much better. Um, I think there is a compelling case now to to reintroduce safe standing. It works on the the, the continent. Um, it's been trialled, I think, by Celtic in in Scotland. Uh, I think it would have huge advantages, not just in terms of of improving the atmosphere. Um, but in terms of accommodating more people inside the stadium, giving clubs the ability to be able to reduce prices, etc. Um, most people support it. Most football fans support it. A majority of English football league clubs support it. But the government, I think, because the truth is successive Tory governments um, have hated football fans. Um, Margaret Thatcher hated football fans and most conservative politicians do. Um, and even though the, the campaign for it has won over 100,000 um, signatures on the, on the government's petition website and will be debated in Parliament on the 25th of June, Tracy Karach has effectively kiboshed it already and, and said we're not going to change our minds. It's really disappointing. I think it goes to the heart of actually what, what the establishment and what Tory governments think about ordinary people, you know, that you can't give the masses too much freedom, too much control because they can't be trusted with it and actually you're just going to invite violence and thuggery. So uh, she's my villain. Of the week. So does that mean, though, that Labour have come out strongly in favour? Probably not. <laughs> so perhaps a broader uh, non-partisan issue here. Yeah. Um, uh, I, can, I can sort of, I, I mean, I'm completely sold. It sounds good. And actually, when I've heard people sort of talk about the issue, it sounds like the safety stuff has been really well worked out. But I can sort of understand the ministerial logic to it. And it's, you know, we've had decades of Hillsborough for all sorts of reasons. But if you are then the minister who allows it again and in 10 years' time, 15 years' time, 20 years' time, something happens, your name goes down in history as the idiot who enabled it to happen again. And so faced with that, you know, versus sort of a week or two of people kind of going, oh, you know, why are you doing this? Versus that <laughs> risk for the rest of your life. And so it's this thing of I can totally get it's the wrong decision but I can sympathise with why someone might just go, yeah, no, I'm not a, in my name. It's all right for you because you're probably a Halifax fan. They still have <laughs> in there, don't they? <laughs> all right, well, on that note, 
James, can you tell us your villain? So I I felt like I had to pick Alexander Nix just because uh, he's the he was the chief exec of Cambridge Analytica, and they've announced this week that they are winding up operations, which. I'm surprised it took them so long. I mean, you know, any candidate who'd ever tried to hire them now, their sort of their name would have been mud. What was quite funny was they put it out alongside a report from a QC that basically said Cambridge Analytica had done nothing wrong ever and their mothers said they're lovely people and they it was quite a weak report. Please tell um, me they did actually say their mothers loved them. <laughs> it's pretty, it was very, very close. I mean it was sort of <laughs> yes, okay, they talked about honey traps, but I don't think they did honey traps. And I looked at the credit card receipts and there were no payments saying prostitutes. I mean, it was genuinely sort of that simple. You know, it's like, you're a QC? Um, I mean, my my sort of thing is, you know, we can all kind of agree, yes, Tut Tut Cambridge Analytica, they kind of got their data in quite a shady way and the Channel 4 News stings on them. You know, they were idiots. But you talk to people in that industry and everyone says they were idiots. Their tech didn't work. They kind of really worked for people who, like the respectable firms, wouldn't. Uh, When I say respectable, I mean competent, not necessarily, you know, nicer. Um, And so my sort of concern is just because this clown show is over, we sort of stop worrying about the potential of micro-targeted adverts. We stop worrying about the power of Facebook. You know, the real story was never Cambridge Analytica. It was Facebook and what that allows. And so, you know... Uh, Alexander Nix, you know, old Etonian, like perfect, perfect Bond villain material. You know, he's kind of bit in the dust. His company's bit in the dust. But the technologies and the sort of risks of it all are still out there. And so, you know, while, you know, RIP Cambridge Analytica, I hope it's not the end to the issue. While also, you know, flagging what I said earlier of, you know, Cambridge Analytica is not why Trump happened and it's not why Brexit happened. You know, just because they were trying to push this stuff doesn't mean it worked. And Paul, how far do you think that the kind of Cambridge Analytica, the privacy, the data collection, the Facebook stories are really cutting through? Or do you think this is a kind of another sort of Westminster bubble? Yeah, I think it, I think it is. But that doesn't mean it's not important. I mean, I, I think there are real issues with, you know, the, these these companies harvesting personal information and what they then do with that, um, you know, because it does sort of feed into a bit of a kind of big brother um, society. So so I think there are real genuine issues there. And I think where, where companies have, have clearly fouled or, or broken the law, um, they obviously need to be held to account. But I tend to agree with James that that in terms of the broader picture and, you know, the man on the Clapham omnibus, um, I just don't think it particularly registers with them as an issue because I think so far as it does, they're probably seeing it as, as you said, another attempt to say this is why Brexit happened, this is why Trump happened. And it just really insults people. You know, people people think, so, you you know, you're telling me I voted this way because because I saw this advert or because I saw this bus, etc. Um, so in that respect, I think it has a pretty limited audience, but it doesn't mean the issue isn't important. Brilliant. And can we go straight into your hero? Yeah, my, my hero of the week is, and I've got to pronounce her name correctly, it's Baroness Malalieu, who I confess I know absolutely nothing about, um, other than just quickly looking her up on Wikipedia. But the only thing I do know about her, which is why, which is why she's the, the hero of the week, is she was the only Labour peer to vote against what's become known as the Halsham Amendment. 
which is effectively, you know, put in put in Parliament in control of uh, of, of the, the the whole sort of Brexit um, negotiations, or in my view, um, giving Parliament a veto on it um, and undermining the whole thing. And Baroness Malilu, uh, who um, as I said, is a Labour peer, was the single solitary Labour peer. And I'll check this on Hansard and I'll look down Amendment 49 and I'll look for the contents and the not contents and of the 200 and odd not contents, she was the only one. And I just kind of, I, I, I've got a respect anyway for independent-minded people and people who don't necessarily just, just go with the flock. Um, but because on this occasion she also made the right decision, in my view, um, that makes her my hero of the week. But if she walked in here now, I wouldn't even know her. <laughs> so, so James, uh, our heroine of the week being someone who has um, or tried to put a blocker in front of um, the Lord's attempts to create this veto uh, uh, and actually call for a second referendum as well. Um, what are your views on that? Um, I mean, the temptation is always just to go for the glib thing of, you know, when we were talking about taking back control, did we mean giving the British executive a massive power grab or did we maybe want it to be back at Parliament? And so, you know, a lot a lot of us on the Remain side sort of do find ourselves rolling our eyes when Parliament dares to assert itself. You know, wasn't this meant to be the point? Um, Bit of an irony, though, in it being the House of Lords, no? Yes, of course there is. But, you know, they're, they're part of the process. Um, but... Of course, all of this comes back to the Commons. I mean, that's all the Lords can do. And actually, I, I share Paul's admiration for someone independent-minded and people who will vote their conscience over a whip, uh, even if it's not my conscience. So I'm, I'm, she certainly wouldn't be on my villains list for this week. But I think part of it comes down to May has approached Brexit in a very stupid way. She has no parliamentary majority and she barely controls... Well, she doesn't control her own side. And so... And yet she just decided to sort of march on as if she had a huge majority and something in the House of Lords and then just act angry when anyone doesn't automatically give her what she wants. And as soon as you have to make a seismic change to the country, and I think we can all agree whether you think it's a good one or a bad one, it's a huge change. She should have probably, once she didn't have a majority, build in formally or informally Labour and the other parties too and try and tie everyone to it and then actually get something that she could pass assertively. And instead, by just sort of trying this weird, like, just head-in-the-sand, hubristic Brexit approach, you know, trying a sledgehammer when all you've got is, you know, a tiny knot hammer. Uh, like, no wonder her bluff is constantly being called. No wonder she's still having to talk absolute nonsense and waffle and fluff and fudge it. And... You just sort of keep thinking you're kicking the can down the road, kicking the can down the road, and the road does end in a cliff edge. Like, this isn't something that can be delayed interminably. And so you just wonder, you know, is anything going on in her head other than this flustered panic of must stay in office another month, must stay in office another month? Well, and I, so I think it you're... doesn't surprise me that she's having these problems in the Lords. So they're only a problem because a lot of this stuff she's not confident she can just reverse in the Commons. Well, I think you're probably being a little bit too generous to her to say that she did have a plan in the first place and knew <laughs> where she was going. But um, final comment to Paul on this. So um, should the Prime Minister have sort of been a bit more bold and open and generous in trying to engage the opposition? I think this this was what was going to happen when you had the people who wanted Brexit and an establishment that didn't to be perfectly honest, you know, an establishment and a civil service who, under no circumstances, let's be honest, other than a few mavericks, um, really didn't want it. So it was kind of the 
irresistible force against the immovable object. And, and as much as I was in favour of Brexit, I was never under any illusions about how difficult it was going to be to get through the system uh, and how people were going to find all sorts of kind of ingenious attempts to, to try and subvert it. So it was never it was never going to be a, a clean fight in that respect and it was never going to be a, a kind of smooth transition. Um, so, I mean, I, I think Farage said, not that I'm often given to, to quote him Farage, I think he said recently that, that we'll probably limp over the line in terms of Brexit and I think that's probably right. Um, I mean, I, I never thought that the minute we, we sign a Brexit deal, all of a sudden Britain becomes a land of milk and honey. I mean, I'm a, I'm a socialist. I'm a trade union official. There's going to be a conservative government still in charge imposing austerity. My point about Brexit is I think being free of some of the shackles of the EU paves the way for a, a, a more radical Labour government to, to, do, to do some of the things that I would like to see in the future. One point I would make is that you know, in terms of this this whole thing about, you know, no deal and parliament having control, etc., we shouldn't forget that the people didn't vote to leave the EU only with a trade deal. The people voted to leave the EU. For me, that means leaving the EU and all of its institutions. And if that means no deal, so be it. If we can get a deal, great. I think it's extremely naive, and I say this as a, as a trade union negotiator, you have to give the other side the belief that you are prepared to walk away from the table. The minute you give the other side the impression that under no circumstances will we walk away because we are desperate for a deal, then all of a sudden they have got the leverage and you haven't. And I just think that's a, that's a basic error, and it's one that a lot of politicians are making, some of them unwittingly, some of them probably deliberately. Well, it feels like despite there being some significant disagreement uh, between my two guests, actually we have found quite a lot of common ground. Uh, so perhaps uh, Mrs May should hand over her negotiations to us. Um, thank you so much, Paul and James, uh, for being my guest today on our weekly podcast. Um, I hope uh, our listeners have enjoyed the discussion. Um, please do subscribe uh, if you haven't done so already and do check out the other unheard, unheard podcasts, um, including our audio documentaries and our unheard shorts. Thank you so much for listening. I've been Charlie Pickles. Aisha will be back next week. 